Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 140. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work, if I'm exercising, any free time, working out in the yard, I can get caught up on all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible. And you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from. You can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash audible and make your smartphone smarter. Well, man, I'm really excited today to have on my show today James D. Murphy, or Murph. He's the founder and CEO of Afterburner Incorporated. Uh, it's a leadership seminar group uh, based with military uh, pilots. He has a unique and powerful mix of leadership skills in both the military and the business world. He joined the U.S. Air Force where he learned to fly the F-15. He's logged over 1,200 hours as an instructor pilot in the F-15 and accumulated over 3,200 hours total time in other high-performance aircraft. As the 116th Fighter Wing's chief of training for the Georgia Air National Guard, Murph's job was to keep 42 combat-trained fighter pilots ready to deploy worldwide within 72 hours. And as a flight leader, he flew missions to Central America Asia, Central Europe, and the Middle East. Through his leadership, Afterburner has landed on Inc.'s Magazine's Inc. 500 list three times, and Murph has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Business Week, Newsweek, uh, Meetings and Conventions Magazine, and has appeared on CNN, Fox News, and Bloomberg News. He was also named as one of Atlanta's top 50 entrepreneurs by Catalyst Magazine. And to date, the Afterburner team of elite military professionals has led over 1 million executives, sales professionals, and business people from every industry through Afterburner's flawless execution model and its unique high-energy programs. Murph, welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, man, I'm so excited to talk to you. It's always fun to talk to former military, especially pilots. You know, people that listen to the show, they've heard me talk about how my kind of foray into this podcast and talking about leadership is directly attributed to my uh, experience in the Marine Corps and being a professional aviator. So talk to us a little bit more about yourself and how you became so passionate about leadership and, uh, and teaching people about leadership in general. Well, you know, I guess we could go back to um, how I got into the Air Force in the first place. I, when I had gone through, uh, you know, going through college, I was a baseball player on scholarship, and I wanted to be a professional athlete. And like a lot of folks, uh, that dream didn't quite uh, come to fruition like I had planned and hoped. And when my senior year, I, when I graduated from the University of Kentucky, I was faced with uh, that decision of, you know, what am I going to do now that I didn't get drafted and I'm not going to play pro ball. So I went into actually sales, selling uh, copiers and facsimiles for a small uh, facsimile and, and, and copier dealership through Toshiba, uh, Toshiba of America. So I learned the, the traits of cold calling and closing and selling small rural companies uh, throughout central Kentucky was basically my territory. 
And uh, during that time frame, um, I learned a lot and was pretty good at selling. However, I, you know, that wasn't really what I had dreamed of doing long term. And I met a fighter pilot uh, along this time frame, and this person just made a huge impression on me that that uh, they were doing something not everybody could do, high level of patriotism, and uh, it just really appealed to me. So I started researching that and was obviously behind the eight ball, but somehow beg borrowed and convinced enough people to get an interview and was able to get a slot uh, to go to pilot training uh, two years after I'd graduated from college. And um, it was very competitive, as you know, yeah. and uh, finally got into the Air Force and went to officer training school and then uh, AMS and then, and then to pilot training. And it was really amazing because I was thinking, how does a guy like me from small town Kentucky get here and literally 16 months after I first joined the Air Force, I was getting ready to solo the F-15 at Luke Air Force That's Base great. in Arizona. And arguably at the time, the F-15 was the most sophisticated jet in the world. And here I was in a single-seat jet fighter uh, strapping in to go fly, and it just hit me. You know, how in the world does a, a regular guy like me get here <laughs> in this short of a time? 16 months. Right. And I started thinking about, you know, the alignment, the esprit de corps, uh, the, the the rigor around uh, the mission outcome or execution, if you will. And I started thinking really quickly. I said, wow, if I would have had just one one-hundredth of this training when I was in the business world, not only would I have myself been much more successful, but my team and my company at Toshiba, the, the dealership, would have been much more successful because you know, they don't have any of this right. in corporate America, which I thought was pretty amazing at the time. So. That idea hit me, and that night when we were at our solo party, you know, having beers, I actually scratched out an idea that I was going to learn this process because the military could tell you all about their technology and their deployments, but very little about the human process that they developed over the last 50 or 60 years. So I vowed to study that process to one day teach it to businesses. So um, that's, that was how the, the initial idea hit my head. Man, that's great. You know, and you know, it's interesting to hear your story, especially on the Air Force side. I mean, typically, you know, and I, I've worked with the Air Force as a joint instructor of flying the tweets, and that's when I really got uh, indoctrinated into your culture. And then I flew in the uh, Guard and Reserve af- after I got out uh, of the Marine Corps too. But it was interesting. Most people go through the academy when they go through flying, so that was interesting that you were kind of outside of, you know, for two years you were working in the business world, and then you went in. So that is a kind of a unique. That's a that's very rare that someone like that goes gets into the pilot program at that kind of stage. So that's that's interesting. Yeah, to hear. yeah. The perspective that I had was much different. Yeah, than I can my imagine. It's for sure. Who were academy grads, ROTC, and you know, most of those folks probably like yourself wanted to be a pilot since they were a young kid. You know, and. And uh, so for me, it was a, a much different experience, but uh, uh, it was a great experience. Well, it's amazing that, you, you know, because you had that kind of different perspective at the get-go. It was kind of like we were talking, you and I were talking before this interview. I was telling you that uh, when I got laid off from American and I'd been just, you know, for 12 years, for the most part, I've been, I was surrounded by this culture of Marine Corps, flying, that kind of mentality. I just took everything for granted. I remember thinking, all I know how to do is fly airplanes. When I got into the business world, that's when it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, wow, all that stuff I learned isn't really understood outside of, that was kind of my epiphany, that wow, they don't they don't get what I've been been exposed to. And I can directly attribute that experience with the, the being an officer, being a pilot, being everything else, to my modicum of success in the business world because it's just not that common. Is that what you mean? You've talked 
you're training a bunch of businesses. Um, talk to me about that and kind of your kind of what how you view and you see businesses today and uh, and the differences between the military leadership style and uh, and what they're used to. Well, the, the biggest thing is, is in corporate America or in, in global businesses, um, you get promoted based on how well you execute. So from day one, let's just use sales as an example. If you're an account uh, uh, manager or leader, you know you, you get promoted based on how well you, you you meet or exceed quota. And eventually, you do that for a while, and somebody takes notice and says, "Hey." Um, you know, Murph or Ned are, are outstanding at what they're doing, so let's promote them to uh, sales manager without investing any leadership training or time mm. in that person. In, in yep. that person. So what do we do? We take one of our best executors off the bench, throw them into this leadership pot, and then uh, hope that they're going to succeed. And, and most of them don't. So they get disgruntled and either quit the company and go somewhere else and become a great executor for the other company, or, you know, they create bad habits, um, or they or they may end up, you know, getting fired. So it's just the opposite experience you and I had in the military. You know, from day one, we're taught leadership traits. And this even goes, you know, whether you're an officer enlisted in the military, we're taught to lead first, then execute. So right. before they flip you the keys to an M1A1 Amherst tank or an F-15, prove that you can lead first. And then for every... Uh, uh, advancement opportunity that we had in our military career, it was always predicated by some sort of leadership school. And even though our number one role was to execute as a pilot, uh, we also had external leadership duties as well. So, um, you know, the military promotes you, so to speak, based on your leadership skills first, and then you execute second. And in the corporate world, it's just the opposite. And, and the problem is, is they're never getting any training along the way. And I think the military purposely invests in leadership training because they know eventually it's the whole demo-do attitude that, you know, you're always training your replacement, which gives us scalability, which allows us not only to survive first contact with the enemy, but thrive short-term and ultimately dominate. And that's what businesses are trying to do as well. Yeah, what a great insight. I agree with you 100%. You know, people... In the, in the corporate world typically do not get assigned leadership positions because of the leadership ability. I think the businesses think they're doing that. Like you said, the best accountant, for example, all of a sudden becomes the accounting team leader and they usually fall flat on their face because they don't realize both the individual and the organization that the leadership skill set to be the accounting team leader is completely different than being the best accountant in the company. Um, to your point, the technical people get put in their leadership positions because they were typically successful in some technical uh, ability in their previous position. So that's, that's a and great here's point. the subtle thing that's really unique about the experience you and I had in the military, and we talk about this in the book Courage to Execute, is that it truly is a process. You know, leadership is something that, you know, that you invest in, in, in everybody in, in your organization. Um, and, you know, as you grow up in the ranks, so to speak, in your organization, it, it's, the, it's that foundation that you received in that basic process of getting a team together, using a collaborative process called open planning to get the initial plan together, and then you as a leader standing above your peer group and going, okay, we're going to put together a plan, and what's great about the military is they, they show you how to plan, and then, you know, I'm going to rise above my peer group, and I'm going to brief the plan 
which this isn't a plan anymore. It's not a general meeting. It doesn't generally start on time and end sometime. It's a brief. It's a pretty precise time where you as a leader get a chance to stand. Everybody else sits and go, hey, we had a chance to collaborate together as a team during the planning process, and we came up with a course of action. And this is what we all agreed that we're going to do. So, you know, as your briefer, I'm going to restate the mission objective that we all agreed to, the goal. And here were the courses of action, the individual accountabilities that you and I agreed that we would do for the team. Who's going to do what by when? And I just want to make sure that this is clear in everybody's mind. Is it clear this is what we agreed to? Yes, it is. Okay, let's go fly. Right. And that's rarely done in business. And that's the first step of leadership if yeah. you think about it. That's where you elevate yourself above a peer group and you brief the team, that last step of alignment. And then we go out and execute what? The pre-brief plan. And as a leader, after the execution phase is over, we want to hold the team accountable to what we together plan based on the results now that the mission is over. And that happens in the debrief. And in the debrief, you know, we're not trying to reprimand everybody. We're really just trying to uncover what went right or wrong based on what we planned now that we have the, the results, and we're looking for gaps. And if we can close those gaps faster than the competitors or faster than the rate of change in our environment, we win. And that's the purpose of a debrief, is to get the team better. Yeah. So the leader leads the team through that. We take those lessons learned that we generate from the debrief, we put them right back into the next plan, and everybody executes a little bit better. And what does that do? That creates more confidence on the team. That's what a leader needs to do. And the leader gains more confidence. And when you have more confidence, you have a bias to action. And that's what the military is all about versus yeah. what I see in corporations. I mean, we have a bias to action based on this confidence, based on this planning, briefing, executing, and debriefing rhythm or process, which is the basis of leadership. Let's talk about the planning. I love what you're talking about in the planning phase and the debriefing phase. But first, let's talk about planning because when I talk about planning in the corporate arena, what I see people doing it, and I see – and it drives me crazy. I see top-level executives getting way down in the weeds, literally putting in line items in Microsoft Project, um, thinking that more detail is going to uh, mean more clarity. I can't remember any uh, part, especially when the high-level leadership, where they would get that level of detail. They were so focused more on intent, right, and telling me what is the ultimate outcome and leaving the more detailed the further down, uh, the closer to the actual executor. The actual executor is doing the most detail, but I think there's a there's a there's a myth out there that when we go through military planning and we're planning for flights and execution that we are expecting um, it to go exactly as planned. My mindset seems to think I do all this planning to help me deal with the um, the, the guaranteed unforeseen uh, circumstance. So talk to me a little bit about planning and kind of dealing with with uh, planning for protect for planning for perfection as opposed to planning for being prepared for the unforeseen? Well, you actually teed up two really important concepts. The first one is leader's intent, and that is what you said. You said you see a lot of folks getting uh, at the senior leadership levels, you know, getting down in the weeds of tactical planning. <clears throat> so one of the things that we teach at Afterburner, and, and you can see this reflected in all the books that we published is there are basically three levels of planning, right? There's organizational planning. That's that three to five year uh, uh, outlook uh, that the that the organization has. Then there's the strategic planning. Right. These are the critical leverage points or the centers of gravity that you're focusing on that will get you to that organizational outcome. And then there's a the tactical planning. These are the daily, weekly, quarterly, or yearly actions or activities that will 
get that desired effect for that critical leverage point, which aligns to the organizational plan. But that's the key is a line of sight alignment from the tactical actions and activities to the desired effect or the leader's intent long term. Now, here's the breakdown that we see is that, you know, as a senior leader, you know, the organizational plan is not a vision. Right. You know, a vision is just way too gray. And if you if you want sloppy execution, then run off of a vision because there's not enough resolution or details or definition in the future to align activities and actions. So um, an example in the military world is as a fighter pilot, we're really good at what we do. And although I didn't fly in the air-to-ground roles as an F-15 pilot, you know, imagine if we were, you know, flying F-15Es or F-16s or F-18 Hornets, and one of our mission was to take out targets. And if our leader's intent was pretty vague in general, hey, you and I are going flying tomorrow regardless, right? Right. And what are we going to do? We're going to pick our own targets. And even though we're really good at what we do, the best in the world, we're going to destroy those targets 100% of the time, day or night, good weather or bad. However, we're going to pick our own targets. And the targets that we pick may have absolutely nothing to do with where the organization needs to be long-term because the leader's intent is vague. And what you want to do is you want to make sure that your fighter pilots have precise targeting based on a high-definition destination that you've described and are continually communicating to the organization. The more details that you put into the future that you would like to have, the better aligned the strategic and the tactical planning will be. So that, that, that was probably the first thing that you brought up. And then the second thing is, how do you plan for the unexpected and the unknown? That gets down to the tactical planning for the most part. But we use a six-step process at Afterburner that we teach. All three levels of planning use the same six-step process. Because what I see in corporate America or in corporations is, you know, leaders go, here's the top line I'm shooting for, here's the EBITDA or the bottom line I'm shooting for. Have your plans to me on my desk by September 1st on how you're going to accomplish that. And the problem with that is nobody is using the same planning process. So the execution is all over the board. Right. So, you know, we teach a six-step process, so the planning process is fairly precise. So step one is to determine a mission objective. So the organizational mission objective is this HDD that we talk about, a high-definition destination. And it drives resolution. Then the next level is the strategic planning, and those are the critical leverage points or the centers of gravity, if you will, military speak, on how you're going to get to that HDD. And then the tactical planning are the activities, but we all use the same six steps. Step one, break down the mission objective. So then at the tactical level, it must align with the strategic and the organizational outcomes. Step two is what are the threats? And I want to know four things about the threat. Are they internal to my organization, external? Are they controllable or uncontrollable? And, you know, this is another breakdown that we see in businesses. There's not really ever a real threat analysis. And step three is, what are my resources? Now, resources get applied to threats to negate those threats so we can accomplish the mission objective. Step four is lessons learned, where we get lessons learned from debriefing. If you don't have a culture of debriefing, you can't pull previous learnings into the future plan so you can execute at a higher level. It's a purposeful step in planning. Step five is a course of action. It's simply individual activities or actions that get to the mission objective. Who's going to do what by when, and how do I know you did it? And step six is to answer your question. It's always the last step. That's the contingency plan, or what if we have 
a uncontrollable threat, step number two, an unexpected or unknown. And in the cockpit, one of the things that we always brief is weather, because the weather guessers are not always right. right. And even though they say, hey, three hours from now, when we get over the target area, the weather's supposed to be clear in a million. But of course, we're flying in the summertime, and uh, in late afternoon, you never know if there's going to be a cumulonimbus cloud right over the target area. So if we don't already plan for poor weather, we'll not have a scripted plan that we can execute once we get there. We'll be brainstorming. And when you brainstorm in, into the threat phase, <laughs> when you're already airborne, you're going to have really poor results. So we plan for the unexpected as one of the six steps, and it's always the last step. And, you know, I can get into more detail if you want on what a contingency plan should look like, but, you know, we always plan for the unexpected. Well, no, I just love, I mean, it's just music to my ears to hear you talk about it because it's just, it, it's, it's such a familiar ring and a tone to, to what I'm used to and what I've been trying to tell, you know, the organizations that I work for, look, you know, this is how we need to to plan and execute because it is about execution. Talk to a little bit about, and especially from a fighter um, pilot's perspective, in a military perspective, what about the 70, 75% rule? And it's a big thing that the Marine Corps taught me about on un, decision-making is that, you know, you got to at some point make a decision based on partial information. In fact, we got so That's comfortable right. we got so comfortable in making decisions with partial information. Talk to me about that process and what you teach organizations. So this is something we see all the time in, in business. People uh, get paralyzed because they need more data in order to have a bias to action. Right. And, you know, this 75% rule you're talking about in the Marine Corps, we call it an 80% plan is good enough at Afterburner, meaning, hey, you know, we're never going to get perfect data. And, and once you do get the perfect data, by the time you deploy your plan, uh, because it takes so long to get that data, the environment's probably changed and the data's irrelevant by the time you get there anyways. Right. So we want to have a biased action. So we want an 80% plan executed rapidly before the environment changes. And the whole reason for this is is we have to have a biased action to win. And in complex environments, which is all the environments that business people are, are, are operating in right now, you're not going to get perfect data because things are just changing so rapidly. But because the debrief component is married to planning, remember step four yeah. is to bring in lessons learned. So we're assuming that debriefings are always occurring. We can accept an 80% plan because we're going to debrief that 20% delta and we're going to make adjustments. Yes. And we're going to do that a lot. So after every sortie, we're going to debrief and we're going to pass the lessons learned to the next crew that's getting ready to step to the next mission and we're adjusting and we're adjusting. And when you do this, think about this powerful process, plan, brief, execute, debrief, make adjustments. Even a large organization like the Air Force or the Marine Corps are making adjustments all the time. So we're staying at the same rate of change in the environment or slightly ahead of the rate of change and you win. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, I love, I love that. It's, it, you're hitting it right on the point. I mean, that's the whole idea is that I'd rather, and like, if you could draw a, a this is the goal line or the objective, whatever we're trying to do, it's never a straight path. It's always a zigzag path. Sometimes it goes backwards a little bit, but it's always a zigzag path to getting to the objective, you know, but the, right. the key is that you're getting there in a timely fashion. And that's what just drives me crazy, that kind of paralysis, you know, that's kind of cliche, the analysis by paralysis, but but that's what happens. I see organizations just bogged in mediocrity and bureaucracy because they're afraid to make decisions because they want all the information to make that perfect decision, and that's just, that'll never happen. That's a fantasy. You know, we work with really large corporations uh, uh, at Afterburner. You know, we, 
work with over 35% of the Fortune 500, and we're working with one of the largest companies on earth right now. And, you know, they've got really great KPIs. They have right. cascading metrics. Yeah. But they still don't have a process to execute the KPIs. I mean, the KPIs are clear, and they're cascading, and they're based on numbers, and they're fractal, if you will. However, there's not that process within the KPI uh, to support it and make adjustments. And so we're not necessarily taking the KPI and breaking it down into individual missions, maybe weekly, monthly, or quarterly missions with subservient mission objectives to take a small bite out of the KPI, get there, plan it, brief it, execute it, debrief it, make an adjustment, take another bite, another bite, and another bite. Um, you know, the KPI is out there, and then two months before the end of the year is up, everybody's scrambling yeah. because there's uh, execution gaps. Well, it's too late at that point. Exactly right. Well, and in in, in because they're not having that kind of constant, like you said, process, that constant kind of cycle that keeps it going, you're absolutely right. They, the KPIs are there, and then it just creates all this kind of unnecessary bureaucratic churn that, that's meaningless because they're just trying to, to – fill in the the metric or, or to meet it to somewhere i don't know oh, i just i love what you're saying this this relates to everything and when you're talking about execution you know in our speak at afterburner uh and in the false execution model you know what we want to do is okay and, and i've learned this through the years in you know writing several books interviewing guys like you and i fighter pilots or professional athletes or top ceos but when when you ask a fighter pilot hey you know, you guys are really good at executing in rapidly changing, fast environments. You know, how do you execute? You know, they're going to kind of give you the RCA dog look. You know, their heads are going to turn sideways. They're really going to have a hard time answering the question. And when you really press them, they're eventually going to say this. Well, I execute the pre-briefed plan. Right. That's how I execute at a high level. And you know what? That's confusing to a business person because they don't get that either. But you and I inherently get that. Oh, how do we execute? Like you said, we put a lot of effort in the planning phase, mm -hmm. all the way down to all the contingencies. I already know what I'm going to do. You know, I've got an 80% script. Now, certainly there's 20% of an unknown, and that's where my standard operating procedures, my great training come in, and, you know, and assessing the right people and having the right people in those cockpits that can make decisions. But 80% of it's kind of planned out, and then it's brief to ensure that we have, you know, alignment, and then we go out and execute what? The pre-brief plan. Right. But that other 20% could be a killer, right? So what, what, what propagates that? Something we call task saturation or task overload. And this is what businesses are paralyzed around right now. And we, we think task saturation is so important at Afterburner that we service mark the term and defined it. So what is task saturation? It's the perception or the reality of having too much to do with not enough time, tools, or resources to get the mission at hand accomplished. Or in corporate speak, it's doing more with less. Right. Now, in the military, we have to do more with less, especially in combat, and we have to do that in today's business world, dealing with complexity in, in, in post-recessionary times. So, you know, we're not going to get more, so we still have to execute. So managers and leaders have to understand that task saturation is a human factor issue. It's slow and insidious in its onset, and it affects performance big time. So instead of encouraging task saturation, we need to understand that it's real and develop tools to identify and eliminate task saturation while people are executing their pre-brief plans. How do we do it? How do we get rid of some of that unnecessary or those tasks? Or those, you know, I, I call it prioritization. You know, Instead of a to-do to list, you need to have a priority list that's ever-changing, that's breathing, that, that, that shifts all the time. 
How do you? Well, you bring up a good point. That's one of the tools that we use. We call it task shedding in the cockpit. So, as a fighter pilot, you know, if I'm flying 40,000 feet above the ground, and there are 350 switches and dials in the F-15 that you have to monitor by yourself as a pilot, you know, at 40,000 feet, that's a piece of cake. But as I get closer to the ground, or as I get into a critical phase of flight, there's no way I can operate everything in the cockpit. So I'm going to have to make a decision before I take off that if I get into a critical phase of flight, there are probably only five or six key instruments that I need to focus on. Right. If I'm flying low to the ground or in the weather, five or six key instruments, and I already know what those are. You know, the attitude indicator, the altimeter, airspeed, heading indicator, and, and a fighter, the fuel gauge. I mean, I already know what those are, and I develop a cross-check of just those instruments when I get into a critical phase of flight. So right. think about this. For businesses, you have strategy, and if you're a business person, you've got your normal Monday through Friday, Friday things that you have to do, but then you have additional duties that get put onto you when a new strategy is rolled out or you get asked to be in a new committee, but you still have that Monday through Friday business you have to execute. But there are critical times in your business, whether it's closing at the end of the month or when there's a, a customer complaint or a disaster, if you will. And if you're the leader of that team, you need to ensure that those folks that are doing that work have their own cross-check, that you've developed for them five or six key instruments. So when the business is in an irregular procedure or in a critical phase of that business, forget about the other projects that they're working on. These are the five, six things, five or six things that are going to keep your business from hitting the ground. I love that you said that. It goes back to even, you know, one of the skills that I learned from flying. It's the same thing. It's a whole aviate, navigate, communicate thing when you're faced with a, whatever it is, a critical that's phase right. of flight. I mean, that's why you have, you know, bold face items or memory items, immediate action items, whatever you want to call them that you have committed to memory. And it's amazing, no matter how complex the airplane is, um, those memory items could probably fit on to, you know, count the, the, the things you have to memorize or at least the procedures you got to have memorized usually about two hands worth, you know, maybe 10 or items or less for the most part, depending on the complexity of the aircraft. But, you know, even if you look at something like on the commercial side of aviation, you know, 10 hands or less, you got memory items, everything else, that's just to get you through that critical phase of flight to keep it flying so you're not, you know, running into the ground or, or you know, hitting. Yeah, and what you're alluding to is a checklist. And, exactly. you know, that is another tool that we teach companies to utilize to eliminate task saturation. You know, first, do they have good standard operating procedures? Number two, are there checklists that support areas of those SOPs, and are they readily available, and do people know how to use them? Well, you're speaking my language, my friend, and uh, gosh, uh, you guys are, are knocking out of the park. I mean, you're, you're talking to all the big guys out there. How can people get in touch with Afterburner? How can how can they, they um, get in touch with you and connect with your books? Where can they find you? Well, our latest book was just released a few weeks ago. Uh, Wiley's our publisher. Courage to Execute is the book and the subtitle, What Elite U.S. Military Units Can Teach Business About Leadership and Team Performance. So exactly what you're, you're talking about in your blog. Um, so they can get that book anywhere, or you can go to our website, afterburner.com, um, and we have a store as well where you can purchase that stuff. And if you want to find out about what we do at Afterburner in our three business units, afterburner.com is a website we do. Uh, obviously, a lot of keynotes, uh, seminars, and training. Uh, we also have a consultancy where we do long-term consulting, and we have software that supports the flawless execution model, i.e. supports execution rhythm and accountability. And then we have a placement firm as well where we, on our client's behalf, find 
uh, elite military professionals that are getting out of the military. We train them in our business model, which is very simple for them to translate their military vernacular to business vernacular. So we ensure their success at a higher rate uh, when they first get placed into your business, and, and then we place them full-time as leaders, managers in, in companies. Um, and we also do some stuff, uh, some youth stuff and some other things, but uh, that's basically what we do at Afterburner. Well, you guys are doing great stuff, and, and I'm so happy to have you on the show. Um, what a pleasure to talk to you. I could probably talk to you for three hours about this stuff. I'd love to have you come back on the show at some point, and uh, we, we could talk even more maybe specific uh, maybe themes, and we could kind of dive into maybe like accountability or or any other. Yeah, specific I just want to know how you got your call sign, Ned. Ned, well, it was actually it was um, when I was going through flight school. The movie Groundhog Day was coming out, you know, with Bill Murray, and <laughs> in and in the opening segments, because I remember when I went to go see Jurassic Park the, when it was out, and we were all sitting there, and they were showing the preview for um, Groundhog Day. And in that scene where he meets that insurance salesman that he comes up to in the street, and his name is Ned Ryerson. So he's like, Ned? Ned Ryerson? And so when I started flight school, and, you know, when you introduce yourself in the class, and you say, hey, my name's Richard Ryerson, and so and there'd, invariably there'd be somebody that would say, Ned? Ned Ryerson? And so it started. I remember that scene. That's great. Well, hey, Ned, good luck to you, man. Thank you for having us on your uh, your call today. All right, Murph, it's a pleasure having you on, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, good luck. Take care. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership eBook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.